love, sex and marriage are in the air uh, in our community. We almost couldn't have picked a better week uh, to start our series on the Song of Songs. Uh, on Wednesday morning, of course, uh, the Labor caucus uh, decided that they would block the proposed plebiscite on same-sex marriage in the Senate. Uh, is that going to be the last we hear of it? What do you reckon? Uh, I suspect not. I reckon they'll have another round next year and then when the election comes up, uh, the excuse of money will go away and it'll just be a referendum kind of thing uh, with the voting papers. But less well publicised, earlier in the week, McCrindle Research published its findings on the state of marriage in Australia. Uh, in 2015, they were looking at the statistics from 2015, last year, it turns out there were 118,992 marriages in our country, uh, which is down by 4,282 from 2011. Uh, and it's been a continual, gradual slide down. There's less and less marriages each year. Uh, four out of five people now live together before they're married uh, in Australia. There are an average 326 marriages per day in this country, uh, and that's every day of the week, if you average it all out, 326 every day. Uh, the most popular day to get married, anyone want to guess? Saturday, uh, and what, I mean, what, yeah, Saturdays, but what, uh, what time of the year, what date of the year? Okay. Uh, give me a particular, is there a really popular day? 14th of February, why is that? Valentine's Day? No, it's not the most popular. Ooh, the most popular day to get married in our country is Australia Day. With 923 marriages last year. Second most uh, popular day, New Year's Day with about 390, and Valentine's Day came in third. Um, the least popular day to get married? <laughs> Who said Mother's Day? <laughs> Christmas Day, Christmas Day. Uh, 37 marriages on Christmas Day last year. Uh, on average, men marry at 29.9 years old, and women average 28.3 years old. So that's all the, uh, the getting married side of things. On the breakup side... The number of divorces last year was 48,000, um, which had slowed marginally from the year before. But if you work it out, for every 10 marriages last year, there were four divorces. Okay? Now, that's actually a slight improvement uh, over the years from the, the, uh, the giddy heights of about 50% in the 90s. Um, the average length of marriage before divorce is 12.1 years, which is up on the all-time low of 1993 when it was averaging only 10.7 years before you gave your spouse the flick. Um, and so what a week to start this series on uh, one of the hottest books of all time on the topic of love, sex and marriage in the whole history of the world. It's the Bible's very own Song of Songs, or sometimes it's known as the Song of Solomon. And yet it's weird because you announce that you're uh, looking at Song of Songs in church and people start to get a little bit uncomfortable and are we really going to do that? You've got to be kidding, right? Uh, for some it's, it's just a little bit embarrassing. You know, poetic descriptions of intimacy and body parts. Uh, maybe you feel it's a, it's a little bit too much information. Thanks. Um, for some, it's just amusing. Uh, you giggle th through descriptions like uh, your, your eyes are like doves. You know, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of new shorn sheep. Uh, your breasts are like jumping gazelles. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, 
they're the, probably the compliments that are going to win the girl for you these days, right? For some, though, it's just depressing. Uh, maybe because you've lost someone or there's difficulties in marriage life or things aren't the same as they used to be. Or maybe because you're someone who's struggled with singleness and you've always wanted the relationship and physical union that's on display here, but, but it's never happened for you for one reason or another. For some, the whole morality of the book seems questionable. I mean, are the couple even married? Are they just obsessed by sex? Why, why aren't they talking about the real issues like, um, you know, should we have joint bank accounts and how are we going to get a house and all those kind of more important questions? Uh, in fact, someone from this church asked me during the week, how is Song of Songs any different from Fifty Shades of Grey? Um, now, if you don't know Fifty Shades of Grey, you are blessed. Um, it's uh, a book and now a movie where a woman is seduced into more and more depraved and deviant forms of sex and bondage, uh, and she really struggles with the humanity, and it's awful, uh, also I'm told. Or is the Song of Songs the Bible's equivalent of the Kama Sutra, uh, the Hindu book on sex positions and arousal and how to, how to do it right? Uh, and there's been plenty of preachers around recently making out that's exactly what this book is. It's a how-to sex manual for Christians, uh, but it's none of those things. And perhaps most puzzling is that there's absolutely no mention of God at all in the entire book. You read through and God is not referred to. Now, this is not the only book of the Bible where that happens, and there's at least one more, and I'll leave you to go and uh, research what that might be. And so why would we spend four weeks looking through it and teasing out what it's got to say when there's, there's all these issues that might make us want to cringe away from it and just kind of avoid the subject? Well, the answer's simple, because we need it. We need it, one, uh, two reasons. One, because it's God's good word to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 assures us that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, uh, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, you want to know God? You want to know how to please God? Well, God saw fit to write this book so that we can know how to live our lives um, that, in a way that pleases and honours him. And so whether you're old or young, whether you're single or married, whether you're divorced or widowed or in some other situation, there is something to learn from here. God's got something to say to you. And it just may be that if you're willing to let God speak through his book here uh, on this subject, that you're going to come away actually quite stimulated, uh, encouraged, challenged, maybe even rebuked. And there will be definitely things to work on. And I reckon that you'll come away praising God for his wisdom if you, got, if you listen to it. And we don't just learn things for our own sakes. Even if this is not our situation, we need it so that we can help and encourage other people, uh, particularly so we can train those who are younger or those who are less mature in the faith than ourselves. Uh, the Bible's insistent that we should always be looking out to disciple others and specifically in Titus chapter 2 on issues of marriage and family life. Uh, the older to teach the younger. So we've got to know what God thinks on these matters for ourselves and so that we can encourage others. But there's a second reason that we especially need to hear it this day and age because our society is so confused and it is going so wrong in these areas of love, sex and marriage and people are doing immeasurable damage to themselves 
and to their children and to society by running headlong away from God's good plans and his purposes in these matters. And it's not just an issue that he's out there in the world and that the church is immune from. No, no, no. The, the church is getting more and more worldly. We're, we're being affected and we're doing the same things. In the United States, the statistics on divorce are exactly the same in the church as without the church. In Australia, it's a little bit different. It's about half the number of divorces in church as opposed to outside church, but, but even that is horrific. Uh, and there's all kinds of things going on. Uh, and here's the antidote, or at least part of it. Song of Songs is all about what love in relationships can be and perhaps should be. And so let's get into it. Uh, what is this book? Well, Sir Paul McCartney says that his greatest life's ambition is to write one truly great love song. So I think he's admitting that he never has yet. But anyway, but no matter how hard he tries, he'll never be able to beat this one. And that's not just my opinion, that's a translation. It's the Hebrew title of this book from the first line, The Song of Songs of Solomon. It means the number one. The best of all, the greatest hit of all time. It's like when God calls himself the Lord of Lords. He's the Lord above every Lord. He's the King of Kings. Or, or in the temple, there's that room in the middle, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. This is the song of songs, and it's a love song, and it's in the Bible. But where in the Bible? Well, it's in the Old Testament, and it's in a part of the Old Testament called the Writings. Uh, if you're not overly familiar with the Old Testament, I find a lot of Christians aren't, uh, the Old Testament is divided into three sections. Okay, there's the law, which goes from Genesis through to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books of the law, or sometimes called the Torah, um, they go from the creation of the world right through to the establishment of Israel as God's nation. Okay, and it includes all the commandments, like the Ten Commandments and so on, about how they're to live as God's people, but it's got this whole worldview over the top of it about why things are the way they are, why the world is the way it is. But that's the law. Then there's the prophets, and that includes books of history like Judges and 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, and it includes the books of the prophets, their words like Isaiah and Ezekiel and so on. So that's the prophets. But then there's all the rest, and that's called the writings. And there's some weird books of history, like Esther and so on. There's, there's some, uh, some other uh, strange things. But then there's a section, a quite a large section, of the, wis- of, of the writings called the wisdom books. Uh, and there's a few of the books of wisdom. Uh, there's Psalms, you know, all the songs in the middle of the Bible about God and about life and so on. There's the book of Proverbs, uh, which is all about the logic of the world we live in, in terms of cause and effect. If you do this, this is going to happen. If you do that, that's going to happen. Um, uh, there's Job, which uh, looks at suffering, and particularly when the innocent suffer. Where's God when that happens? How do you make sense of suffering and evil in this world? Uh, there's the book of Ecclesiastes, which is about meaning and purpose in life, and, and how it is that most of the things that we pour our lives into as if they are the meaning of life actually turn out to be hopeless. It's you know money, career, uh, it turns out to be a breath, a vapour. It's, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow and, and there's only one thing that's permanent worth living for and that is God himself. So that's Ecclesiastes. Uh, and then there's the Song of Songs. 
Now, at one level, the wisdom books are about how to get along in the world, and everyone agrees on that. But I've got this theory, and I, I can get no one to agree with me, but I want to tell you it's right, um, that the real aim of the books of wisdom is to show the power and the goodness of God's law. Okay, what the, the, all the topics that the books of wisdom talk about are all the things that are in Genesis through Deuteronomy and they pick them up and they, they show that they're not just what God commands but why they're so good and important and enriching for us. They show how amazing God is and his ways are. They show the power and goodness of how life uh, is when it's lived his way and not just because you'll pay if you don't, which you will, but it's actually for our best. It really works. And the Song of Songs is no exception of that. This greatest love song of all times is showing the incredible thing that God made in creation when he made man and woman and he gave them as gifts to each other, especially in marriage. And while relationships in this world are never without problems and the song deals with many issues like loneliness and jealousy and distance, in relationship, fear of rejection, uh, longing, uh, all of those things are part of the normal ebb and flow of relationships, but the storms and the tears of the book are more than overshadowed by the sunshine and the laughter of the relationship that God is describing here. And so let's get into it. Uh, there's two main characters as we've seen. There's the beloved, uh, who's the woman, and there's the lover, who's the man. Uh, those headings really aren't part of the text. Uh, they work it out from you know, when he, you know, someone says he's like this and the other one says she's like that. They've given those headings, but it makes the woman sound a little bit passive, which, as you'll find, is not the case. But the song is basically a duet between the beloved and the lover, and they're each singing their part, and sometimes they're standing together singing to each other. Sometimes they're, they're on the opposite ends of the stage looking out, wondering where the other one is. But then there's also this chorus line of people who are called the daughters of Jerusalem, although the NIV here labels them as friends. And these friends keep interjecting into the duet. Sometimes they're giving encouragement. Sometimes they're giving advice. Uh, sometimes that advice is brilliant. And sometimes it's very, very bizarre. And you think, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> but we'll get to them another week. But who are these lovers? The man is certainly referred to a couple of times as Solomon. Okay? And for some, they reckon that this is the story of Solomon and one of his wives, maybe the one he really loved as opposed to the other 299 who he married for political purposes or his 700 concubines who he kept on the side. That's a lot of women in your life. Okay? Someone at 8 o'clock worked out 1,000 women 365 days of the year. That's, um, that's a busy life <laughs> and tiring. <laughs> maybe. For some, it's the story of a poor shepherd boy and Solomon's maybe regretting the way he's lived and he's, he's, he's singing this kind of idealised love story of you know, someone else and putting himself, his name, in the story. Uh, so it's this poor shepherd boy and his girlfriend. Uh, for some, it's a complicated love triangle because that's a bit more spicy. That uh, Solomon's one of Solomon's harem is actually in love with another guy, and he's trying to stop their affair and trying to woo her back to himself. Uh, 
some think the whole thing is just an allegory of the relationship between God and us, and it's got nothing at all to do with human relationships. It's, you know, so every time I desire you, it's how we should feel towards God and how God feels towards us. Uh, and then by far the most bizarre option I've come across in the last two months working this out is that it's a love song between Jesus and his mum. There you go. Uh, there's, some, there's some options for you. And you know what? They're all wrong. I've worked it out. They're all wrong. And there's a reason why the identities of the couple are so vague. Because we're not meant to be thinking about a particular guy and a particular girl. They're blurry figures. The point is that one is a man and one is a woman and they're in love. He happens to be called Solomon and she is called the Shulamite girl. She hasn't got a name. And no one can work out even if there's a place called Shulam and I think they never will find one uh, because what's interesting is that her name is actually the feminine form of Solomon. It's the same Hebrew letters that spell it. Okay, S-L-M. It's Solomon and Miss or Mrs. Solomon. And more important than being similar to each other in name, uh, they are both variations on the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, which uh, is a word that dominates the law of God and is the whole purpose of God's creating the world and his creating Israel the nation. Okay, he's created them for shalom, which means for peace. So shalom means at peace. Everything is right and in harmony with God, with each other. Okay? Uh, in fact, if you turn to the last chapter of the Song of Songs, chapter 8 and verse 10, the woman's speaking and she says, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. There's some interesting imagery. <laughs> Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. And the word contentment there is the Hebrew word shalom. I have become like one bringing shalom. I have become to him Mrs. Shalom. Yeah? And so here's the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Peace, Mr. and Mrs. Contentment, Mr. and Mrs. Shalom. And the relationship brings about this shalom, this rightness, this peace. It's a picture of what relationships could be and perhaps should be. Happy, contented, loving, fulfilled, at peace, shalom. But the book doesn't start out that way. In fact, the book starts out with feelings of longing, jealousy and unfulfillment. Mrs. Peace starts off as Miss Peace and she's not at peace at all. And that's because... The story goes like this and the whole movement of the book. She has met a man, okay? He's a good-looking guy uh, and she longs for a relationship with him but he's got absolutely no idea that she even exists. Or at least that's what she thinks. And that's because he's this handsome man that all the ladies want. They all want him in their life. Have a look at the start. Solomon's Song of Songs, back in chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. All the women love you. 
See, she's got this inferiority complex beside all these other women, the daughters of Jerusalem, who, who are all singing his praises. In fact, verse 4, it's very clear in, in the original that they're talking about the dude. They're singing his praises, saying how wonderful he is. And so she says in verse 5, Dark am I yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. And you might think, well, hang on, she's exotic, she's, but why is she dark? Well, don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, whom, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? And so here's this beautiful girl who's ignored and overworked She's sunburned from working too hard in the fields. She hasn't had time to take care of herself. And all she can do is look at this man longingly from afar. But as the story unfolds, it turns out that he has noticed her and the feeling's mutual and the relationship grows. He visits her as often as he can and they begin to long for each other's company. And so chapter 2, verse 8 Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. Uh, he proposes in chapter 2, verse 10, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing is come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And so it's poetry of, of unsurpassed beauty. But they're separated again for a time before in chapter 3 and verse 6, he returns in splendour and they marry in a spectacular wedding. Chapter 4 then is their honeymoon. Uh, and, and it savours in intimate terms their unhurried lovemaking. And, and it's a wonderful picture. But then the rest of the book looks at their developing relationship and yeah, there's the sheer, unmitigated, undissolved enjoyment of each other and their bodies and, and getting to know one another. Uh, there are difficulties along the way. Uh, she's still not convinced at points that he's really there for her. But as the book moves to the end, their intimacy and the sensuality and their marriage bond grows and grows as they deepen in their knowledge and love of each other. So that, that's, the, that's the book in overview. But I want to focus for a few moments on one phrase that gets repeated right through the song which captures the, the oneness and the exclusiveness of their bond. It's a refrain that keeps popping up. It's not the only refrain, but this one keeps popping up. It first appears in 2 verse 16 and then in 6 verse 3 and finally in 7 and verse 10. Uh, in each occasion, it's the woman who's speaking, the beloved, and it goes to the heart of their relationship. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. My beloved is mine and I am his. It's a statement of their commitment and exclusiveness and just how right they are for each other. And in a sense, I think what it's doing is taking us back to Genesis and chapter 2. Uh, keep a finger there and... and Come back, it's not hard to find Genesis 2 because it's um, page 2 of the Bible. Uh, well, after the preface and the editor's notes. And the, but uh, Genesis chapter 2. Come back there for a sec. 
Genesis 2 and verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so this companion for him is needed and God provides in the creation of woman and she's this incredible and fitting and wonderful companion. And so when Adam finally sees her, he breaks spontaneously into the first love poem of human history. Uh, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, for she was taken out of man. And the conclusion is drawn straight away in verse 24. For this reason it follows that a man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife and they'll become one flesh. And the the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And so I want to suggest that the Song of Songs is really kind of an an extended commentary on Genesis chapter 2 in the light of all the problems that come up in the world. And and that's part of the reason why most of the song is set in a garden of all places, uh, an idyllic garden. And it's this principal idea of the Song of Songs that that illustrates the, the uh, the point of real marriage so powerfully. My beloved is mine and I am his. And I just want to make four very simple points today about the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Shalom, Mr. and Mrs. Peace. One, it's a heterosexual relationship. The Song of Songs is unashamed and completely consistent with the rest of the scriptures in saying the only context of true lovemaking is a heterosexual one. It's a man and a woman. A man leaves his parents in a very public and social step and he cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the Song of Songs celebrates this joining of one man and one woman in the bonds of marriage. Now that's not to say there's not complex and troubling issues surrounding same-sex feelings and orientation. They're difficult issues which need sensitivity, compassion and care to explain in detail and there's not a whole lot of time now. I've had to care for uh, various men who have gone through these kind of issues uh, and and some other ones as well. I've had to deal with a, uh, and care for a uh, the lover of a gay man who committed suicide and, and, and care for him through the funeral and afterwards uh, and it's complicated. But if you want to know more, we can talk afterwards. However, the point is staring us in the face and the Bible's not ashamed that the Bible envisages, God envisages and allows no other kind of marriage than a heterosexual one. Uh, Solomon and the Shulamite woman are unmistakably male and female. The whole book is structured that way and we're left in no doubt that they revel in each other's masculinity and femininity. Um, he's captured, or she's captured by his energy, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, by his strength and his virility. Chapter 2, verse 9, he's like a young stag, you know, kind of all muscly and, you know, ready to go. Uh, he's delighted and captured by her sweet voice in chapter 2, verse 14, and her eyes and her, her, her face, which is beautiful, and as the book unfolds, her other feminine parts and qualities. So we're not meant to miss that this is a a heterosexual relationship that's being celebrated. Two, it's a committed relationship. Chapter 8 and verse 6, right at the end. Place me like a seal over your heart, 
like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. So there's no mistaking through the book that this relationship is under a seal. It's a covenant relationship of promise and reciprocal promise. It's committed and, and it goes on to life's end. Okay, it, It's as strong as death and it won't end until death. And quite simply, that's what marriage is about. We'll come back to that in uh, week three. When a woman says, my beloved is mine and I am his, she means forever and vice versa. And when people marry, they say, we're in this for life. No matter what happens, I am yours and you are mine for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. And some couples have poorer, sicker, worser. And that's sad, but you're promising I am there in those circumstances. I'm not leaving because I am yours and you are mine. And it's when and only when they've said that and said it publicly that the way is clear for the seal of the sexual part of the relationship. See, what is sex for? Sex is there to cement a relationship and it's really, really good at doing that. Um, sex is like super glue. Uh, some of you have heard that before from me. It's like super glue that, that bonds a marriage together. And when you use it to bond uh, two people together who aren't married, who haven't made those promises that you're mine and I'm yours forever and we're not leaving and stuff, well, you know what happens when you super glue your fingers together and then you try and tear them apart? It tears the skin. You leave a little part of you with the other and, and vice versa and, and there's damage. Uh, so if sex is like super glue that bonds and marriage, the opposite is also true. As an expression of any other kind of relationship, sex is totally inappropriate. It's a lot like glue sniffing. Uh, you know, glue is great for sticking things together, but if you use it to give yourself a high or a buzz by sniffing it, you abuse it, and you know what? You do yourself permanent damage. And I, I reckon there's every chance that some of us here have been damaged by the inappropriate use of sex. Uh, whether it was abuse that was done to us or, or a one-night stand or an affair or something that happened you know, in teenage years and, and I bet it still hurts. Right? Um, and if that's the case, well, you know what? We can get your help to deal with the guilt and the shame that I'm guessing is there and, and get your help to learn how to forgive or perhaps even to be forgiven. Sex is designed to stick people together in the tight bond of marriage. That's its purpose. That's its glory. That's what its designer intended. And so use it in other ways and you turn a wonderful thing from God into a wrong thing and a damaging thing. And I tell you, our young people are doing themselves untold damage by messing around with sex before marriage. They're being encouraged implicitly by the school's teaching on same, safe sex, which is not safe at all. The only safe sex is sex in marriage. Uh, four out of five are living together before their marriage and the, the statistics bear it out. You have double the divorce rate uh, if you live together before you're married. Okay? Um, the chances of domestic violence are, are way higher 
in a um, a de facto relationship than in a de jure or a you know, legally married relationship. Uh, and they're horrifying and the effects on the kids, on their education, on their health, they're all far higher, um, like worse um, in that kind of way. Sex outside marriage is the spiritual equivalent of solvent abuse. So it's a heterosexual relationship, it's a committed relationship, but then third... It's an erotic relationship. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard that in church. <laughs> what God's really saying here is that a stale, unimaginative, uncommunicative sex life is not what God wants for your marriage. Uh, and it's not to be one side either with one forcing themselves on the other to get their way. There's a mutuality uh, and a quality of the relationship of the couple. They, they both play their own part and and they play it enthusiastically. There have been two great lies about sex down through history and uh, Christian history as well. One is to conclude that sex is not good. Okay, that it's it's the great evil in our world. Okay, and that's been perpetuated. Uh, the other is that sex is everything. I'm going to leave David to address the second one next week. <laughs> Lucky him, because uh, sex isn't everything. But let me just touch on uh, the sex is not good. Uh, St. Augustine, who is one of the greats of the history of the church, wrote amazing stuff, but he wrote in the City of God of the shame which attends all sexual intercourse. Okay? Another medieval theologian taught that the Holy Spirit left, leaves the bedroom when sex is about to happen. You know, because God can't handle it. <laughs> In other words, there's been this suspicion down through the ages that God barely, barely tolerates sex. He only lets it happen because that's how you make babies, right? <laughs> but any thought that maybe it's for our enjoyment or companionship, no way God's into that, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, the song of songs just blows that apart, right? And so does the teaching of the New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible. Uh, make sure you're not abstaining within marriage, says Paul to the married couples in Corinth. We read that in our other reading. Unless it's for a specific purpose and, and only for a short time. He says you, you owe it to each other. Uh, you deny each other and you're stealing something from the other person in your marriage. And it goes both ways. It's not so that men can get their way. He says, you know, it's for women to, you know, enjoy and 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 initiate as well. It goes both ways. Intimacy is so important. It's good and it's meant to be good. It's created by God to bring us joy and peace, shalom. And that's the vision of this extraordinary book. Uh, and so I reckon maybe some of us who are married might need to ask. If we're working hard enough in that area of our lives, uh, are we making time for each other? Yeah, it's difficult when you've got, you know, bazillion kids. <laughs> you rabbits in the front row. <laughs> uh, I still remember the interview we had with Ken and Melinda eight or seven years ago, <laughs> saying, yeah, when they told us when and where. Um, Friday night and Sunday night when the kids are at youth group at church. There you go. 
because it's the only time we're alone. <laughs> um, did we record that? <laughs> we recorded it now. <laughs> Are we making time for each other? Do we need a weekend away? Do we share our feelings and desires and our fears with each other? Uh, is the intimacy still there? Have we kind of let it slide? Are we engaging in what psychiatrist Jack Dominion speaks of when he says sex in marriage is urgent therapy, perhaps one of the most powerful forms of treatment spouses can carry out for one another? So it's heterosexual, it's committed, it's erotic. But fourth and final, the relationship that the Song of Songs speaks of is a holy relationship. It's a holy relationship. And here's where it does all point in the end to Jesus and the gospel. So when two people come together in the bonds of marriage, something incredibly powerful happens. Uh, Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 5 a great mystery. It's a great mystery because the unity of marriage both models and is modelled upon the relationship between Jesus and his church. Okay, that is the great marriage in the Bible between Jesus and his people. Um, and it's modelled on that and it models that. Jesus laying down his life for his bride. Uh, the church submitting to his love and authority. God uses marriage as a picture in miniature of the whole realm of the gospel, uh, the love, the forgiveness, the presence, the power, the friendship of God. They're, they're all there and they're all involved in marriage. The working model for marriage is nothing less than the covenant love of God himself for us as his people. Jesus laying down his life to pay for our sins. It's about self-sacrifice, true love. And that's what makes marriage so special because that's what it's modelled on. And of course things are going to go wrong and there'll be ups and downs and difficulties. We'll let each other down. But that's the goal. That's the, the glorious picture which lifts marriage into such a special and unique and different, distinct category. My beloved is mine and I am his. Now, I suspect there's plenty of conversations that may well need to be had, um, and uh, this afternoon might be a good time to start talking, but not just in our family and in our, in our marriages, but there are those who are struggling with other things, and I want to say, have those conversations. Uh, there's nothing that's in the past that can't be you know, worked on, improved, uh, dealt with, depending what's there. But make sure the conversations happen, specifically the conversation you've got to have with God, that your life might reflect his, his purposes and his glory, because it will be for your best as well. But let me pray. Father, we thank you for the Song of Songs, and even though we might be a bit embarrassed and giggle through some of the descriptions, we pray that our lives might reflect more and more you in our marriages, and for those who are married, we pray for the developing of intimacy and the depth of relationship and communication, that it might more and more reflect your love for us. We pray for those who are struggling with singleness or those who've been hurt through divorce or who've been widowed. 
those who've been affected by sexual sin in the past, who've been abused, who've done some abusing, we pray please for your mercy and your love to restore and heal and help them move forward. We pray that you'll protect the families that are represented in our church and help us to be a model to our community and a shining light of what love and relationship can and should be. We pray, please, for our community, which is doing such damage to itself. with so many hurt people and so many damaged children. Uh, we pray for your mercy. Help us to care for those around us who are going through difficulty, to be your agents of love in their lives. And we pray that your gospel might shine through in both our actions and in our words, that we might glorify you. Help us to grow into this relationship with you, that it might be more deep and fruitful and lovely each day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.